everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. For several weeks now, we've been doing an Ask Me Anything time with Nick, our lead pastor, at the end of our Sunday services and answering any questions we didn't get to in these podcast episodes. This week, we decided to split the content into two episodes. This episode is part one, where Nick and Nicole, our director of music and worship arts, are going to focus on topics related to race and multi-ethnicity in the church and how to stay in conversations even when you disagree with someone. In particular, they talk about Ahmaud Arbery, white privilege, and church leadership. We know that these can be heavy and controversial topics, so if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We would also love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of the AMA from the Engage and Equip. So many little short um, introductions, but we are here to tackle the questions that Nick received from this past Sunday, which was the 10th of May, about his sermon and about some other things. Woohoo. Yeah, woohoo. So before we jump into um, sermons related to the quest or the questions related to the sermon, we wanted to follow up about um, a portion of this service that we dedicated to talking about Ahmad Arbery. Um, so if you missed the service during our, you, you better start with if you missed the story. Oh, that's good. Let's not presume. Yes. Okay. If you missed the story, Ahmad Arbery uh, was a black man running in a neighborhood. My understanding was it pre- was that it's a predominantly white neighborhood. In Georgia, I think, right? In yeah. Georgia, yeah. He was running. He was shot and killed by two white men who um, at, at that point, this I think is where people's perceptions start to part ways. Yeah, apparently he was approached because they thought he may have been a vandal or burglar in their neighborhood. They had no evidence of that, but he fit a description, obviously. And they tried to make a citizen's arrest. It created a scuffle. The older, the father of the two white men shot and killed Arbery. And so there's all kinds of, it, it just, the whole thing just sort of reeked of kind of racial profiling that then led to mm-hmm. authoritarian behavior that then created a violent inter- interchange, which then led to the use of deadly force. And so yeah, it, it just, that, and obviously if you're African-American, that feels like the, the phrase people use was being hunted mm-hmm. that like, here's a guy who thought just like, he's just running and he looks like a gazelle to somebody, yeah. you know, and that idea that people would see you just living your daily life right. and then, and then take the role of predator kind of, mm-hmm. While while wanting to tell yourself you're actually just playing the role of bringing justice, yeah, um, and to be that 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 that's kind of this. And then I think two months had passed. Yep. So that had, there had been happened in and there was a video, February. right? So the, it seemed like there's a video. You should be. You should know who did this, right? Well, mm-hmm. and and there's questions as to when the video surfaced for anybody involved. The video surfaced to the public in the past couple of weeks. The yeah. um, he was shot and killed in February. So. Um, so this this seems like one of those unarmed African American man trying to live his life. And this guy, the, the thing with 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 Arbery is he wasn't selling cigarettes to the street. 
right. and like responded badly to police. He didn't try to grab a policeman's gun. He this, didn't. These were not policemen. Like, these were. Just, yeah, I mean this. Yeah. this is just like he got. It would. I mean, like this is very overly weird and very disconcerting because, like, what could this guy have done? Right. Different. Absolutely. It's hard. It's yeah. very hard to imagine. So yeah, yeah it's it. This one I think is more, even more disconcerting. Than some of the the mm-hmm. other ones where you're kind of like, uh, yeah, that's a bad situation. Yeah. Right. So during our service, uh, it, at one point, um, I brought it up and I prayed briefly. I mentioned praying for, or I didn't mention, but I prayed for his mom. It was on Mother's Day, so I prayed for Maud's mother, um, and I also prayed specifically out of Ephesians, praying for unity in our church, in things that divide us. And then during our AMA section, Nick, you talked a little bit about how to think about these sorts of things, how we use social media and these sorts of things. Um, We received a couple of emails, one of them that was um, commenting. Both, both I think, are helpful. Yeah, yeah. I know they were both helpful emails and written in earnest of people trying to help with these things, but of slightly different perspectives. Right. Um, Yeah, and I appreciated the thought that it clearly went into both emails. They were very kind and respectful in bringing up ways that they disagreed. And like you said, they had different Mm -hmm. persuasions. So one email- One of them in particular- is by um, an Asian American guy in our church who's in a multi-ethnic marriage, international marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, great guy. And he wrote a really kind email that w- I wanted you to read so yeah. people could hear it. And I think so. I think for sometimes for white people who have really tr- strived to live embracing lives of everyone around them, but still feel like they are dogged with accusations or they don't know how to respond to things and um, – there sometimes when people tell you how to behave in situations like, like how you really ought to behave, mm-hmm. it sometimes doesn't feel helpful, but this, this felt helpful. It's not super profound in a way, but I, it still felt helpful. So I thought we should yeah. read it yeah. for people listening. Yeah. So I'll read it. It says, so this is directed to Nick. It says, thanks for being a reliable Christ-centered leader during this challenging time. Many of us at the church are relying on your message as our spiritual food weekly and praising God for what you are feeding us. As you have suggested us to voice not the best thought, but the authentic thought, I want to share my impression of your answer to the question on Ahmaud Arbery this morning. I agree with everything you said. However, I thought more demonstrated empathy for the victim's family will help unite us. I remember how you responded to the Charlottesville parade by coming out of your sabbatical and made your statement. Similarly, I believe it's okay to show more sympathy towards those who are feeling that they're being hunted. It may feel cheap emotion for someone with a strong intellectual mind like you. Regardless, I think it will resonate with a large segment of your followers or future new followers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, did you want to share? Maybe it'd be helpful to share even just how you personally received that after making a statement. And I mean, part of what's hard in being a position where you are in a leadership and being in front of people and a diverse congregation like ours is that there's there is a feeling like you're kind of in a like it's it's not easy to please everybody in your church and not that that should be what you're trying to do anyway, mm-hmm. but there is a, there's a responsibility that, and a weight that comes with being a leader speaking into moments like this. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's also a difference between being a people pleaser and how you think people are perceiving you and carrying that around with you. you right. know? Mm-hmm. So w- when I read this, I just felt really loved, mm-hmm. you know, I felt like this is a really apt encouragement towards change. Yeah. Um, it fit my, it fit me really well. I could tell that he had 
he wants to like me, you yeah. know, and that he, yeah. he really appreciates the stuff that I try to do well and sees my heart in it. And that yet I think his, his urge towards improvement here was very helpful. Yeah. And so I felt really loved. And I, th- I think I, 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 this may, uh, this may sound untoward, I guess, for me to say it quite this way, but when you're a white pastor and you're the senior pastor of a church that's predominantly white that you really wish would be a church for all people, mm-hmm. it's easy to feel the frown of non-white people over your ministry mm-hmm. because even even if you try to do stuff, it's just never enough. It's mm-hmm. never going to be enough. You never did it quite right. And I'm not saying that people often always say that to me, but like- yeah. I just, I just, you do hear from people and then you just see a lot of people just leave and, sure. and I'm not saying they're wrong to do so. I'm just saying I still feel a certain way. And it, sometimes right. it feels like all of my brothers and sis, brothers and sisters who aren't white see me up there flailing about trying to bring unity yeah. and go, this guy just, he's so stupid. He just doesn't understand anything. And when somebody like this goes out of their way yeah. to not just hold a frown over my head, but to say, you're doing, you're doing a good job. You're doing your best. I like, I get it, but man, if you did that, this is something you might not see entirely. And so I think what I, what I love is when people try to try to perceive what I can't see just from where I'm sitting and to try to help me see it. Right. And then they let, and then they do it. They say it in a way not to berate me for not seeing it, but it's almost like when you're like trying to point something out to your kid, when they don't see something, you're like, okay, you see that tree right there and look a little bit to the left. I remember yeah. taking my kids deer hunting the first time and they, you know, they can't see deer in the woods because their eyes yeah. aren't trained for it. So I would see a deer and I'd be like, oh, there's a deer. And they're like, where? And it would take me like 10 minutes yeah. for, to help them see it. I'd be like, okay, look there, look, do you see that little line? That's the back of the deer. And then, mm-hmm. and then, then they would see it. They go, oh, wow. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like people do that with me and I love it because mm-hmm. there's just, as however long it takes, they're going to be like, okay. You see yes. that? You see this? You see that? Until I go, oh, that's great. Yeah. As opposed to being like, you're just so, such an idiot. How can you not see this? Right. And I really appreciate it. And I'm not saying I deserve that or anything. I Maybe mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know. But but yeah. I don't care if I deserve love. I'm glad to receive it, whether it's gratuitous or deserved. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I really appreciated this email. Yeah. So we did have one person ask a follow-up question related to this that I, um, that, you know, could could absolutely deserve its entire own episode. Um, so if we choose to expand yeah. on it later, maybe we will. But this person wrote, what is your take on the idea of white privilege? Yeah, I'm so glad they asked. That. <laughs> uh-huh. um, um, okay, so I'm going to talk about this for like a couple of minutes and I'm just going to stop so we can move on. Okay. okay. And maybe I'll add um, a couple of thoughts. Yeah. So, um, I believe that without truth, all that's left is power. And that when a generation of people no longer believe in truth as something that if I tell you the truth and you believe it, the truth will constrain you and you have to obey the truth without me trying to force you. And that when you give up on the truth, even when you say things you think are true, you're really just using them to coerce other people with power. And people's fear, the fear of the whole concept of white privilege is that it has nothing to do with anything but power, right? But the people who purport the idea of white privilege are arguing that there is a relationship of power already 
that people don't want to recognize. And mm -hmm. so discussions about power are fraught with difficulty because you can never tell. It's very hard to tell whether you're, when you're talking about the truth and when you're just talk when you're just jockeying for position. Yeah. Right. And so people can be very really resistive to the idea of white power. And whenever you're talking about something that is institutionalized or part of a structure, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to put your finger on it. Right. So, so people, so people say, you know, it's institutional racism that does this or that and therefore white privilege. And it's, you know, it's, man, it's hard to call something racist when it, you can't say there it is. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but so one of the things that I start with to try to think through things in a Christian way as best I can is to start with our view, our Christian view of humanity. Right. What are human beings like? Mm -hmm. And human beings like to have an inside track. Everything about human beings, especially unredeemed human beings or human beings that aren't living out the gospel is me getting more for myself and me getting a place for myself, me securing a position for myself, me doing favors for others so that I do things for them and they do things for me. That's that, that before that has anything to do with white people within the sociocultural history of America. Mm -hmm. That's a fundamentally human idea. Like if you go to central Zimbabwe or Kenya, that you're going to find that with, with Africans, you go to Hunan province, you're going to find that with Chinese folks, you know, no matter where you go, you're going to find human beings behaving this way. So if, if white Americans have had a lot of positions of influence and they, people use those positions of influence to increase their influence and security, that's human nature. So it's, it seems to me impossible to have a white majority and a white majority of success and a white majority of wealth in a country and for there not to be certain privileges that are somehow at least mystically tied up with, if not systemically wrapped up in those people's experiences. And it doesn't really have to be a horrifically sinister thing mm -hmm. or something that people do in dark circles, you know, smoking cigars and, you know, sure. there's in their smoke filled rooms, right. Mm -hmm. To be a thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I get that. Right. Um, but I also think that there are, I still don't even, I still don't know what people mean by white sometimes because there are some African-American folks that behave culturally white because they were either adopted into those families or whatever. And sometimes they find that people react to them differently because they culturally act totally differently. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, the, and then within white culture, there's lots of different, you know, like there are Brahmins among whites, right? Like, the, like there are class distinctions and interracial differences between white people that I think sometimes African-Americans Maybe they're as attuned to as white people, but I, maybe they're not. I'm not sure. I see this in India. You go to India, and, and mm -hmm. if you're not careful, everybody looks the same. Right. But there are all these privilege gradations, sure. and they're usually connected to racial groups and cultural groups and, and family lines and all that kind of thing. So so I would say I believe, I believe in a certain kind of idea of white privilege functioning in America simply because I don't think it could possibly be otherwise. But I don't think that that's a reason to make us a less merit-based society to use power to give power to another group as opposed to a different group, but instead to, tr to strive to become increasingly impartial with maybe some careful caveats to that, which I, I do agree that there could be some, and I, that obviously that gets into policy stuff that gets really complicated. But right. anyway, I, so, so as a basic reality of human nature in a country with a particular majority there must entail a privilege to that majority over the course of a few hundred years. 
-hmm. It couldn't be otherwise. It has nothing to do with whiteness. In America, that phenomenon is going to be entailed to white people. And so you'll have something like white privilege. That doesn't mean I agree with like a progressivist professor from Ohio State that whatever she's going to say about white privilege, I agree with. Does that make sense? I, yeah, I usually when I listen to people like that, I'm like, yeah, that's not what that means. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I don't know. That's a sketch, I guess. Yeah. I um, I was talking about this particular question with my husband briefly this afternoon because I think it's, for me, there's a lot wrapped up in this that is complicated because I come from a family where my mom is white from the U.S. My dad is Mexican, immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico. And I look like most other white people you would see. Like, I mean, when people, when I will say this, non-white people are quicker to see that I might not be only white um, than white people. But anyway, point is, I look, I mean, I've got dark, blonde, light brown hair, lighter skin. And um, so in many ways, I've experienced the like the privilege and the assumptions that come along with that. But I've also seen other sides of it. Being from a bicultural family, having siblings who don't look the same way that I do, especially with my brother. Um, I saw that when we were in high school at a very small conservative town uh, or in a small conservative town. And I think, so I, I find myself kind of caught between two worlds with this. And on the one side, I wish that, um, I wish that people wouldn't say this doesn't exist because I think that we see it in more ways than this. Like, I think we see it in certain instances. You could talk about the privilege that you experience when you're a man. There are other instances where you could talk about privilege that you experience being a woman. I mean, like privilege itself, that's like you were saying in any situation where you have a majority, there are things that are going to come along with that. So I I wish that people wouldn't say that it exists, but on the other hand, it doesn't exist. You're saying I'm just arguing it doesn't exist. You wish they would acknowledge it does exist. Yes. But on the other hand, I wish that people wouldn't, um, like, I I think whether you have privilege or not is in, in, according to like what you have done is neutral. Now, I think you can get into different conversations about what you should do with that privilege, what responsibility you have, and that's more nuanced. And And ethically speaking, there's nothing wrong with privilege, right? Like you have to actually show if somebody has a particular privilege, whether it's ill-gotten or not. Right. And because like my mom was an immigrant. She came here without a penny to her name. She Mm -hmm. worked in Scrimpton and saved her entire life. And because of that, there are certain financial and personal privileges that I have because of her sacrifices, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, somebody says, well, you're privileged because you had that mother. I'm maybe like, you're darn right I'm privileged that I had that mother, but I don't repent of it and I'm not going to hand over her blood bought, right? But but if another person in my life stole the fortune of somebody else and, and therefore I'm privileged, right? Then that's that's a bad privilege. So part of it is, I think one of the difficulties, I'm sorry, I cut, I cut your point off. We'll, we're going to get back to it in just a second here. One, but one of the things I think when people resist it, I think one of the things that is important to recognize is that in its provenience, this language was developed by progressivist scholars and academics. But and I it was part, yeah. And it's, it was part of a regime of language to engage in power plays to break up what they consider to be white hegemony, but it also to attack white people. And there's a lot of white people who like are not fooled by that. Like they know that this is a power play. And so therefore they resist it. And, and that's what you're supposed to do with bullying. You're supposed to resist it. So I I see that position too. 
complicated is that there are there are people who don't use it in that way or who aren't trying right. to use it in that way who are trying to say I want you to recognize that this thing exists and and um and like it, I don't I don't want people to be demonized for recognizing that they have some sort of privilege, but it, I do mm-hmm. think it is really hurtful when, when someone says that and then they say, no, I don't, that's not, I don't have that. And, and I've experienced the pain of that mm-hmm. in relationships that I've had. Um, yeah. and so I, th- yeah, right. I think it, it, for, for me, because I'm 42, so I went to college in the middle nineties. And so when I went to college in the middle nineties, affirmative action was in its height. So as a kid from a, from a family where I was the fr- on my mom's side, I was the first, well, I was the second person ever to go to college because my brother was two years older than me. So I'm the first kid on that side of the family ever to go to college. And, um, and then I see minority people being either hired in professorate positions who are not very good at being a professor. And then I, I saw students getting put ahead of me, put an honor society. I mean, like, and it clearly for not, they weren't achieving more than me. And it wasn't like I was carrying some old world privilege and like, it's like, it's easy to build resentment along those lines. And so, and I, that was where I sort of like came into adulthood. So people who are older than me, I think maybe feel differently. And maybe people who are younger than me, who like after the Supreme court decision against, I think it was the university of Michigan having different criteria for people coming into college like that that happened after i was out of college and in my career and so for me i i have a different experience with that where i was i was seeing people promoted over me and me not getting privileges in that little snapshot of time for me but see that's not american history that's not the whole of the history of america that's like a little snapshot right. so yeah and, and so i i, I have trouble with that because like you also have people like you know jd vance or like other people who like grew up as hillbilly hicks and like they had all the disadvantages you could possibly imagine in American poverty. And then they get somewhere and then people are like, well, you have white privilege. I just, I think you got to be careful, but as a theological anthropological human idea, people have privileges. They accrue those privileges and they try to expand them. That's part of human nature. Mm -hmm. I I don't, it doesn't do any good to deny that. Right. Well, and I, I think that, um, there are certain phrases that, are kind of, um, I don't think I'm using this phrase the right way. I was going to say a non-starter, but I don't think that that I'm using that correctly. But there are certain phrases that kind of are like a trump card that you play when you're in a conversation where it just ends the entire conversation. And I've definitely seen ways that, that white privilege is used in that regard. And I, I, I wish that it weren't used as a trump card mm-hmm. to just say, well, I don't have to listen to anything that you say. I think that's right. really unhelpful. You're blinded, you're blinded by your privilege. Right. Or, right. I think that's really unhelpful. People, for, people forget that there is, you can be blinded by disadvantage too. There's, I mean, all kinds yeah. of things blind. But, but, I, yeah. and, but similarly, I think that um, – you do the same thing when you say it doesn't exist. And, and I, I think when yeah. I like, you're saying, cause what, cause when you say white privilege, you, you can't say this cause if you're white privilege, you're stopping the conversation. Yeah. Right. But if you say white privilege doesn't exist, you are rejecting the starting of the conversation. Right. Yeah. And either, either way, you don't have a good conversation. Right. If you shut down a conversation or you won't start one right. in both cases, you won't talk. Yeah. And I, I think for for much of my life, I felt very confused about my own ethnic identity because, like I said, I look very white. I've experienced many privileges, but I also really resonate with my 
Mexican heritage and culture and feeling like a minority and feeling the some of the negative things that I experienced. And so I for much of my life I felt like this is such a like I'm not enough to be white and I'm not enough to be Mexican and like no one sees me as their own. However, I do think one of the things that I have felt convicted by is how God can use that it to be a bridge between different cultures. And this is one of the ways where I feel like I see different cultures missing each other, like missing the point from one another. And I wish that I wish that didn't happen the way that it does. It's, and I think that yeah. we see that around this phrase, especially in addition to others. So, so to Nicole, I, I say what we should do is we should finish up with this, answer the next question in this thing, and then cut this as its own okay. episode. That's good. So, because I do think this is important because there are some people that they hear that they hear like anybody admitting to like the white privileges. They're like, this is, cr- that's crazy. You're letting a weaponized language produced in the university by secular progressivists infect your thinking about things in ways that are going to give, it's basically just handing over your rights as a human being to people who are going to destroy them. And it's going to just, and it's a part of identity politics, which tears people apart. It doesn't bring them together. And it, it's what's creating a white identity politics in America and white, the, the amount of white supremacy that exists comes because of this increase. Like, and there's a lot to commend that view, but when you, I just, I mean, every single person who's not white thinks there's white privilege. I mean, some of them are like, yeah, but it's, it's not much. Like I'm, I, I listened to one commentator, an African-American guy being like, okay, I read the list. Have you, I don't know if you ever read the list of like, the white privilege list that the first like the professor that like made that that idea famous and it's like i can get i can get band-aids in my skin color and i can and like if you read that list and you get down the end of it you're like nobody should succeed or fail in life because of any of this i wouldn't say that there are many things on the list that seem somewhat trivial right right and so in that way, I think it can be, it can be a, so, so yeah. So I really, really distrust it as a political ideology and as a, as a conversation Trump card, but I also believe it's, it's an absolute certainty speaking in terms of human nature. And I think that, I think the idea should be admitted to open up real conversations between people. Otherwise I do feel like you just end up rejecting people because they're like, no, there's this dynamic that really does exist. Right. Right. The problem is, is I think that if you're a white or minority person and you want to talk about this, you should be ready to like give really good, helpful examples. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think there are some really good, helpful examples. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think that you have to talk otherwise, but if you just vaguely talk about something and be like, well, it's just, it's just there. Then either the other person already sees it or they're not going to see it. And so the bringing it up really just serves to divide, not to unify if you can help describe it and help people see it like the deer in the woods mm-hmm. and then they see something, even that little bit that they see, even if it's just part of something, you share that with each other. You share a shared perception and that has the capacity to draw you together into to agreement or to, to some kind of sharing. So I think, I think we've got to stay focused on that prize. Yeah. And I think that's why for me, I, I don't see any better hope for unity aside from the gospel, because there is something that sh- does give you unity and, a, and, and beyond just a shared, like it's a shared identity now that we are the, in the family of God. 
We have been mm-hmm. united with one another and we are called to love one another. And right. so there's a, there is a, um, a higher purpose to fight for the unity in those relationships yeah. that is that is compelling enough to actually do the work of listening to one another, of like um, s- trying to slow down your heart rate in a conversation, for example, because you, right. you're you coming with all of these things. Like, I think it's great that you share the example of the period of time that you were in college versus what someone else might have experienced. I mean, we're all bringing all of those things right. to these conversations and we have to recognize that. Right. Because I don't think I would have the same perspective if I had gone to UW in 2016. I, I I probably wouldn't have, but right. it, it, I, I went to college in New York at a rural school where almost half the student body was African-American. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was because of a huge push to get more African-Americans in school mm-hmm. through affirmative action measures, which I don't, I'm not really, I'm not really against, mm-hmm. but, um, but that was what I was experiencing. That really did paint like right. some of the dynamics well, of that. Like for me, I went to high school in a small country town um, where mm-hmm. I was one of fewer than 20 minorities at the school where there yeah. were people who, when my brother was a freshman, a friend of his was the first black student to go through the high school. And um, there were students who would run down the hallway wrapped in a Confederate flag who would link arms across the hall and not let black students pass them. And that absolutely shaped my experience. Yeah. And so I, yeah, because yeah, for years, I, for like, so let me give you another example for years. I believe that the right way to talk about racial integration was colorblindness. Right, and the yeah. reason the reason for that the reason for that wasn't unthinking. It no. was that I grew up next to Fort Drum in the in in upstate New York, and so the vast majority of African Americans in my high school were all military kids, mm-hmm. and almost all the African American families I interacted with were two parent families where the dad was an officer, and oftentimes the mom was also an officer in the United States Army, and so. When people talk about black poverty, I had no idea what they were even talking about. Right? Like most of the kids, I, most of the kids I knew, black kids I knew growing up, had more money than I did. Clearly, mm-hmm. way more money than we had. Clearly, because a good officer salary is, you know, especially if your other parents working too, they did have more money than me. And so, like the whole idea, like so, like when I went to places where I was, I interacted with African Americans who had like, like literally grown up poor, like in the inner city. I had no idea what they were talking about. I thought I understood black people. Yeah. I had no idea. So when I went to college and almost all the people I met were from Brooklyn or the Bronx or like somewhere in New York city and they'd grown up in the hood and they had, you know, made it out. And this is, they were the first person in their their family going to college. Oftentimes they were like a completely different creature to me. I was like, wait, I thought I understood black people and I clearly didn't. And I know Mike Beresford had a similar experience. Like he grew up very close to an air force base. And so he, he was part of this like very, and it wasn't just, I thought it was the reason I thought colorblindness was the way to go was because the military is so absolutely integrated in a, in a military identity. You are a soldier. Soldiers do do X, Y, Z. And you're that first and you're black people are black and white people are white, but you're all soldiers in the United States army first. And in some ways, I think that's a good metaphor for the church in the sense that like we're, we're still black and white and half Mexican and half like we're all these things, but you are supposed to know that foundationally you are a, image bearer of the Holy God who belongs to the body of Christ. 
And we treat because of the death of Christ first. Yeah, yeah, and we relate to one another, knowing that that is what links us and bonds us. Right. I think an honorable relationship to that person's ethnicity and culture, also. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is another thing that I think I'm frustrated with because I've talked with many people who will bring up colorblindness, and I've seen. You know, whether it's a young white progressive college student or if it's somebody who is a minority, um, kind of like uh, reprimand that person for bring for using that phrase and terminology. It's called blindness. Yeah, and I just yeah. that's also I mean, that's yeah. helpful. Most like, for those who are listening, you're not supposed to be colorblind anymore. Like that's a really bad thing because, right. and the reason, for, like, on one level, that's dumb, but on another level, it's it is true because you, like it's easy to go well, well, because we're colorblind, none of us should be our ethnicity or race, and so, and then the assumption is, well, you know, white people are the neutral col- culture. So we'll be that culture since we're all going to be colorblind because we're all basically the same. But the, the idea like is, is we're all this, we're all the same in dignity, mm-hmm. but we're not actually all the same. And haven't had the same experiences. And right. yeah. So, but I, I don't like when people are like, I can't believe you would say colorblind. Do you know how ignorant that is? Do you know how? Because no. for a lot of people, when whenever it was that they were like walking through, whether it was, I actually don't know when the colorblind phrase started but that's what they were taught they should say and so right. now they're just trying to learn I was definitely taught that in school. yeah and so like if that's what you were taught was the right way to think about it and maybe that needs to be changed and shaped fine that's one thing but i think mm-hmm. to hold to like to demean someone because of that like that's not yeah. helpful either right the whole idea of being colorblind was to bring down the barrier that like i'm white and you're black right yeah. and like so we're we're opposites and the idea is like no, they're brown and you're beige. You're like all different color browns. Like, it, like this is not a thing. Like it's a right. And so they wanted to take down that dividing wall of hostility. What it seemed to erase implicitly was the fact that no, but but we are different from each other in all kinds of ways, specifically related to experiences, right? Yeah. And so the language had to evolve to get at a different point. It wasn't like mm-hmm. it wasn't colorblindness isn't wrong. It's just not getting at the right point right. at this evolution in racial relations yeah. that people want to talk about. Like, uh, let me tell you an example of a of a phrase that I hate that I may have to evolve on. Yeah. Um, the phrase "black bodies." Huh. I don't know that I've I heard that, that in phrase. context. Yeah, it's like violence done to black bodies. It's oh. it's referring to black people with explicit reference to their physicality. Okay. Right. I think I don't understand it because mm-hmm. like when uh, the person who I think made it the most culturally famous is Ta-Nehisi Coates when that, in the book Between the World and I, which I have not read. I've read a few pages of, but I haven't read. Um, but I hear it by like, like liberal progressive kind of people. But then I was listening to um, a book by a like an African-American Southern Baptist, she, one of Vadi Bauckham's daughters. I can't even think of the book right now, but she wrote a bunch of letters to her son. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're like black mother to black son, right? And yeah. I listened to the first couple of chapters, like I, I was crying. I mean, yeah. it was beautiful writing. And she kept saying black bodies and the bodies of black people and stuff in just weird ways. I was like, why is a Christian saying this? Because mm. I think of that as a very demoralizing way to talk about human beings that were nothing but bodies. Sure. Right. Like, like, mm-hmm. like, the, like you, as though you can talk about a human being that way. And, and if, to me, it's a sacrilege to speak about a human being that way. That like, like our bodies is the fundamental thing rather than our souls or our beings or our mm-hmm. consciousness. Mm-hmm. Right. But like, that can't be what that means. It can't be, right. that can't be, but see, the thing is, I think Ta-Nehisi Coates is openly an atheist. 
And so I, I took the, I took it early on and say that sure. what this phrase is basically, it's a rejection of all things spiritual. Mm-hmm. All there is, is the here and now in the physical body of me as a black person. Right. And therefore all that matters is what you do to my body. So don't tell me you're doing something for my good or you love my soul yeah. or whatever. What matters is what you do to my body, my black body. And I, of course I think that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. But on another level, I, I can see a kind of meaning in that. So anyway, I'm trying to figure out what that what that phrase means, what mm-hmm. it really means to people who say it. Right. And I may reject it in the end and say this is a, this is a this is a very unhelpful way to talk. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I owe it to everybody who I live with and love to really understand why people are saying it, mm-hmm. even if I think it's a bad way to talk. Yeah. But like, I feel like that's, that's one of those phrases that like comes in and you're like, ah. Yeah. But you got to sort of, you got to sort of, but in, I'm going to learn something from it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that'll be good. Yeah. So let's, um, let's look at the next question. And this, I mean, it's, it's just going to guide more of this conversation. So this question says at the moment, leadership, and I, I can't tell if there is. This means leadership in the church and specifically high point is okay. the way I read it. That's what I thought too. Okay. Leadership reflects a small group of people. We're not able to see all people reflected in leadership and teaching positions. How do we as a church body allow leadership to reflect everyone, especially women and people of color? Yeah, I, man, there's so many ways I want to try to dissect that question. I mean, on one level, see, this gets back to the whole colorblindness thing or not, right? Like, are we just looking for the best teachers? But of course what connects with you in teaching has some relationship to your experiences and where you're at. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, and you naturally listen to people who are more like you. That's just human nature, you know? Yeah. So I think, so first of all, I think it's important to recognize um, the biblical teaching about gender roles. Mm-hmm. And so there are previous episodes specifically about what egalitarianism and complementarianism and, in what ways the biblical theology about manhood and womanhood affects the placement of women within the leadership structure of the church. However, um, complementarianism, the version that we believe in at high point, the only role that um, is, we only have men in is the role of elder. Mm -hmm. And um, that leaves just a lot of swath of leadership and teaching and activity for women. And I mean, I, I, among the elders of the church, there are zero women. Among the staff of the church, the church has always been over 65% women. So women women are usually a super majority of the church's staff, um, even though they're in a lot of the, a lot of the administrative positions are women. So if you just to focus on the ministry staff, it would be a lot more 50-50-ish or maybe a little bit, a little bit more men. Skew towards men. Mm-hmm, a little bit. Yeah, and in the highest positions, the executive positions, um, in the pastoral positions, it's there's a lot of men. Um. In relationship to people of color, though, I think um, this may be too crass. I'm going to say something, and it may be too crass a way to put it, but um, I just try to promote anybody who's qualified. If I, I mean, if where it was, I don't do that with white people. With white people, I take uh, the whole pool of people who are qualified, and we select what we feel like are the best of them at the moment, and they they're the ones we use because there's just lots of them. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to people of color, I'm just looking for anybody who is qualified to be an elder because anybody qualified to be an elder could be one. 
Mm-hmm. And in some ways, having them there representing things and, and doing that work has its own value. And so we try to just invite anybody, any person of color that, that is qualified and interested, we try to move in that direction for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Lloyd has always said, Lloyd Bidlar, our African-American associate pastor, for those of you who don't know, Lloyd, has always said, we, we just, we still need to have the same standards. Like we can't be so focused on being multi-ethnic that we really don't have the same standards. We need to have objective standards. But he said, he, w- he would say this in a number of books that we've all read together say this too. It's you, there's a natural bias for people like you that you think they're more qualified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's natural for me, for example, to interact with an African-American and just, just by the way they talk, by what they say, by the way they move their thought, like all these like subtle cultural things. It's just not the way I would do it. Mm-hmm. And of course, since I'm the pinnacle of competence in my own mind, mm-hmm. you know, people who are more like me are going to be more competent, people less like me. It's just like similarly, um, like if somebody is a, a super extrovert, and I'm hiring like you know like the small groups pastor, and then we get like a really analytical, conscientious candidate. I naturally think the conscientious analytical candidate is more competent than the outgoing extroverted one, because it's more they're more like me, mm-hmm. right? And Not I think that they can't be both. Right, right. But I'm just saying that like that's human nature, right? And so. Um, and I think that that's true. Like when I interact with with people who are of, of different ethnicities than me, who are pastors, I tend to feel like they don't do it right. And I think I I know that's at least partly cultural, mm-hmm. right? And um, and a lot of them bear a lot of fruit, and they're working in a situation kind of different than mine too, structurally. So, anyway, I so my short answer is this: we I am always looking for people to promote from those groups into positions of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um. But in order for that to happen, people of those groups have to stay in the church. They have to become members. They have to commit themselves to doing ministry and caring about the spiritual family of our church over the long term in order to be a shepherd in our church. And so part of it is just those people, people of color and women, um, making the sacrificial decisions. I'm talking about specifically people of color here, making the sacrificial decision to be part of our family long term. Right. And that is that is against nature in the sense that in the places where we desire belonging the most, we tend to desire sameness the most. Mm-hmm. So we don't care if we buy the new iPhone from a black person at Best Buy if we're white. And if we're black, we, we don't care about buying donuts from a white kid at Breakbush or like whatever the Breakbush. donut place is. Greenbush is a chicken place. Is Greenbush? It's Greenbush donuts, right? Yeah, like Greenbush. Like you don't. I mean, who cares, right? Um, and then the bigger the purchase, the more trust is involved. The more bigoted we tend to be. We care more about buying. If I'm a white guy, I care more naturally about buying my car from a white guy than I do caring about buying my donuts from a white guy. Because the more the more trust is involved, the more your bigotries come out, mm-hmm. right? But, um. But when you when you you're like when you're thinking about a context of belonging, like where you don't want you're not buying something, it's not economic, you're not it's just being with people. Mm-hmm. The more that's the case, the more you want to be like around people like you. It's you it's it's like the old saying from Cheers, you just you want to be where everybody knows your name and everybody has the same problems. Yeah. And and you just want to know that like you belong. It's easy. Mm-hmm. You want your you want it to go easy. Yeah. And multi ethnicity is not easy. No. Basically, in any way, there's like no way in which it's easy. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so people just don't tend to do it. They they tend to just go to places where people are like them. Yeah, and well, it's hard to begrudge that in a place like Wisconsin, mm-hmm. where you know African Americans in Madison, they're they're in oftentimes in white dominated context the whole week, right? And then to be like, hey, on Sunday, you want to be another one? And they're like, not not really, no. So I just have a ton of respect for African-Americans who hang in there at High Point and are part of the ministry and are pushing us to be more multi-ethnic and to see things we don't see. And um, there's some great folks doing that, but we, you know, we need like three times as many. Right. And I, I, I need to, I'm trying, I'm just trying to keep learning about how to make that better yeah. without being fake. Right. Well, I, I just, without do like all the, the, the moral preening and virtue signaling that like, Oh, we're, we're, we're one of those churches that we just, I, I don't, Right. I don't want to do it that way. And I, I don't, I don't think most of our people of color, most of the people of color want us to be that way. Yeah. I think too, Nick, that's something you, this idea of belonging that we gravitate towards the people who are like us in some ways, that's why having visible people of color or of like mm-hmm. who have an accent to show that they're from a different country. I mean, these are things that are really valuable. And I, 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 I have gone back and forth in my own heart struggling with like, is this just tokenism or not? But um, I was at a conference, this was a few years ago in Dallas, a few of us from the staff team went and it was the Mosaics conference. It was specifically about multi-ethnicity in the church. And um, I went to one of the trainings that was, I, I, I want to say it was specifically about worship or worship services. But um, the woman who was leading this was saying like, there is something there is a value that we lack or that that we're missing. I don't want to say lack, but that we're missing when that person isn't there. And I, um, so for example, like I've, I've talked with, um, I'll, I'll share this about August who, cause she has shared this with our church. She's one of our scripture readers. She's from Argentina. She was nervous when we first asked her if she wanted to be a scripture reader because she thought, I, I have this thick accent. I don't think people will like hearing it. But that was actually part of precisely why, because then when other people from other countries come into our church and hear her reading scripture, they can also think, oh, I could belong here too. Mm-hmm. When they see, even if they're not from the same country that she is, even if they don't have the same accent that she does, or if you're a person racially of color and you see someone who's on our stage who isn't white, and maybe they're not, they don't look the same as you, but you see, oh, there, there could be a place for me there too. Like in that place it, or in that way, it also gets at a sense of belonging too. That I think is mm-hmm. important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like tokenism is the phenomenon where you you engage a, with a person who's who looks different to take pressure off of you to be more diverse or to win moral standing points that you are diverse and so tokenism i think is inherently bound up with motivations which is one of the reasons why accusing people of it can be immoral because unless you really do know why they're doing it because there is i don't think there's any difference between inclusion and tokenism functionally in certain circumstances. Sure. If all that ever happens, right, is just you've got that one person that's there and that, that's clearly all you're interested in, then at some point, how could you call anything but tokenism? Mm-hmm. But in the first place, like when you, you know, you put August up on stage, say, August, please read this. And like, we love your accent. Just read it clearly in your accent, you know? Well, what's the difference between that and tokenism? And the answer is you can't tell. Right. Right. Yeah. 
So I think you, so I, I, one of the things I realized early on is I will always be in danger of tokenism in the sense that we're going to do things indistinguishable from tokenism. Yeah. What matters is our motivations, why we're doing it. And then, and then in a big way, how we follow up, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, Nick, are there any other places you want to take this conversation today before we wrap up? I just, I think we just, we have to listen with a lot of humility and we have to make sure that we are not politically captured in our language about these things, right? Like if you're super politically captured as a Republican conservative, the fact that I gave any credence to the phrase white privilege is just going to like make you angry. And if I don't, if I don't sing its praises in another chorus of the hallelujahs, if you're possessed by progressivism, it's going to make you crazy. And you're going to think that I don't, you know, I'm naive and I don't really know and I don't get it, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's not that it's that you have another religion and you, another worldview and you're not listening to Jesus about this because Jesus tells us that our identity to him is foundational. He never, he never mitigates or undermines the idea of racial identity. The Bible is full of reference to racial identity and that God is incredibly inclusive about racial identity. Right. And that in including people in his covenant community, his real community of, of sons and daughters, he doesn't erase any of that. Right. There is no, as far as we can tell, there is no heavenly culture that erases or eradicates ethnic culture. But it does order it. It does change it. It do, And it does bring it into unity with the culture, the cultural expressions of all other believers because you are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so... um so the that image of the beloved community that Dr. King, that Martin Luther King would have constantly referred to, right? This that we're we're meant to love each other, to not be enemies. That we haven't. That the goal is not racial justice. It is racial justice, but the ultimate goal is racial reconciliation. It's the reconciliation into the, at the the table of love and hospitality of all people. Now, in order to do that honestly, there has to be racial justice. Yeah, but racial justice isn't even the goal. The goal is reconciliation, is love, it's belonging, it's the family of God and the kingdom of God. So I, I think it's important to recognize that. And then from there, what that in that sense, we're all colorblind. But then from there, we're, we're also all what we are. And yeah. those differences matter. And those differences are, are enriching, but not automatically enriching. One of the things I really I struggle with with the concept of diversity is that diversity always makes us stronger. I do not think that's true. I think diversity has the potential to make us stronger when people bind themselves together in understanding and humility and in love. Then I think diversity basically always makes us stronger. Right. Right. But um, the idea that it just, it just will, I just think is false. Mm -hmm. And so it's, so if we become the body of Christ together, then we will be built up by the diversity of the people God gives us both in our temp, like not just in our race, but in our temperaments and our genders and our classes and education levels and experiences. You know, so I just, I want to encourage people to like, just don't freak out about any particular word. Try to figure out what people mean by it. Yes. And you'll hear the same person say white privilege, the same, like three different people say white privilege and they'll mean three different things. Mm -hmm. So just always ask that question. What do you mean by that phrase? Mm -hmm. What do you, what, and don't ask it accusingly, just, but if put your emphasis on the word you, what do you mean by white privilege when you say that? Mm -hmm. And then they might give you a definition. You'd be like, well, I don't have a problem with that definition. You know, and then that's it. And then other people, it might be different. So I just think understanding humility, long suffering, putting up with people, the supremacy and primariness of our identity in Christ and that we're brothers and sisters. And that in one sense, we're all one blood. 
but where we are one blood in different family lines and different peoples, but that we'll exist within the culture of the kingdom of God seamlessly. And that if we were totally sanctified, we would be like that now. Mm-hmm. And so, so sometimes I think the image of the multi-ethnic church, the truly multi-ethnic church, is a over-realized eschatology, right? It's, it's thinking you can actually accomplish something that won't be accomplished till heaven right now. Mm-hmm. But just like not being sexist, which may be the same, I think it's still our job in this season to approximate it as much as we possibly can. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Well, um, Nick, thank you for giving more time to this. I appreciate that. I'm sure there are many listeners who do, people in our church who do. Thank you um, for those who sent these emails, the one that we read and the other one, mm-hmm. and for those who asked these questions. Thanks for asking them. And mm-hmm. uh, I, we, I want to think some people feel like we talk about this too much. And then other people are like, you never talk about multi-ethnicity and like being one people. And I don't know what to tell you. You you really do have to talk about, this is one of those things everybody wants to forget about because it's always effort. Yeah. And we just, because it's always effort, we can't ever stop talking about it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm inclined to apologize because it's a hard reality, but I'm not morally sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's so worth pursuing. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.